0: Well, good morning. good morning. We'll turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a glorious, spirit inspired prayer this morning, at least part of it. We'll come back next week to look at the second part of it. Just in a couple of announcements, we are gathering tonight again for Sunday evening worship. We'll be back in the book of Jeremiah. And when you get to heaven, And you run into Jeremiah, and he asks you, how'd you like my book? (laughs) You want to have an answer for him. So come out tonight if you can. Also, as always, we've been doing this for over nine years now. On Monday afternoons, we have kingdom prayer in in the old building at 3.30. And tomorrow, we will be uniquely focusing on our country on the coming election. So please be thinking about maybe coming to join us in prayer. We'll be praying for other things as well, for sure. Uh, But we will focus our attention on our country. Of course, we know that the most important thing that's happening this week is not on Tuesday. It's what's happening in the local church on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. That is a reality. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians Chapter 1, and if you would look with me in verse 15. We'll read the entire prayer this morning, and we will be looking, though, intently in the first four verses, 15 to 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named... Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Amen. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, what better prayer to pray as we begin the sermon, but that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning to behold your glory, your sufficiency in the face of your son and by your spirit and through the word of God and through the preaching of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that know anything about Billy Graham, you know that he became really nationally famous and perhaps even internationally famous at the 1949 revivals in Los Angeles. And one night, uh, William Randolph Hearst, who who owned the largest chain of newspapers in the country, he came to one of the meetings out of curiosity. And after that meeting, he went back to his office and he sent out a a two-word teletype to all of his newspapers. Puff Graham. And so the following night, all these newspaper reporters and photographers from all over the country were there, and and Graham noticed it, and he asked one of the reporters, what's going on here? And the reporter famously said, you have been kissed by William Randolph Hearst. Another story that I love about Hearst is that... He was a very well-known collector of art treasures from all over the world. And, and one day he found out about these particular treasures that he wanted to be part of his collection. And so he summoned his agent to go and search for these particular treasures. And after months of searching, his agent reported back and he said, I have some good news. I have found these art treasures that you want. And Hurst said, where are they? He said, they're in your warehouse. (laughs) Hurst had been in search for treasures that he already owned. The Apostle Paul knows this can happen at the spiritual level as well. Believers, every believer, every single person who has repented of his or her sin. And trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation has been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We do not need a second blessing. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But Paul also knows that we can be oblivious to what we already have. And, and so immediately after laying out These blessings, which he says are purposed by the Father and purchased by the Son and procured by the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He prays. That's what we see today. He does not want us to be in search for what we already have as believers. Now, it would be hard to find a text much less a sentence, and we have seen that verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in the original language that emphasizes more the sovereignty of God in his purposes and in his saving us more than what we see in verses 3 to 14. And yet now, in the second part of Ephesians 1, which by the way happens to be one sentence as well, Verses 15 to 23 is one sentence in the original language. Immediately after laying out God's sovereignty in our salvation, the Apostle Paul begins to pray. In other words, the knowledge of God and his purposes being fulfilled by his sovereign will was an incentive to prayer for the Apostle Paul, not an excuse for ignoring it. And so he begins verses three to 14 with a 202 word praise. And now he concludes chapter one with a 169 word prayer. And at the very beginning of this prayer, he tells us why he prays. And why does he pray? Gratitude and concern. Notice with me in verse 15... For this reason. What reason? All that he's laid out in verses 3 to 14. The fact that God has saved us. He has saved us by his sovereign grace into an adoption into a family, the family of God. He has redeemed us by his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. And he has sealed us by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing... Our adoption, our redemption, our inheritance. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So here he prays and he says, it's because I've heard. Now he's in prison And it's been some five to seven years since he last visited Ephesus, but he's heard. He would have gone if he could, but he was imprisoned. And perhaps if we were friends of Paul's of that day, we would have said, this is a a terrible providence that the apostle Paul is in prison. But think about the fact that if he had not been in prison for 2,000 years, we would be impoverished because we would not have the prison epistles. God works all things together for the good those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And here he has heard about their faith in Jesus, which separates them from the idolatrous world, the world, and he's also heard about their love for all the saints, which unites them to each other in the midst of this world. Now, I want to look at these separately, just for a moment. First of all, notice he commends them for their faith, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that when we get to chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul has a concern that they don't fully understand the implications of faith. It appears that they're somehow confusing faith and works because he's going to say, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, in this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He writes that because evidently there was confusion about this relationship between faith and works. And yet here he is commending them for their faith. Then notice as well, he says he commends them for their love. And what's even more remarkable here, for all the saints. Now, all of us, every single one of us in here have a natural love for some of the saints. The reason we can have a natural love for some of the saints is there are people here that have your disposition perhaps, or maybe you have more in common with them than others here in the body. But it's a supernatural work to have cruciform love for all the saints. And that's the kind of love that Paul is commending. He's commending their cruciform love. That is love in the shape of a cross. Now let me define what this love is. This love is the unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of others at the expense of self. That, that's what cruciform love is. This is the kind of love that Paul is commending for these believers. You have shown this love for all the saints. Now, perhaps you've heard the well known adage to dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to to dwell below with the saints we know, that's a different story. (laughs) And yet here, their love is for all the saints. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, though, because throughout the New Testament, one of the real acid tests of true regeneration and true conversion is this love. For instance, in 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's one of the marks of having been saved. We love the brothers. And yet here, even though the Ephesians love all the saints... our love isn't perfect. And why do I say that? Because later in chapter five, he will say, be imitators of God and live a life of love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you to atone for your sins. And so clearly, just as their faith is not perfect, Their love is not perfect either. And yet here, Paul is commending them for their faith and their love. So is this flattery on the apostle Paul's part? No. In fact, he is teaching us here how to minister to one another. That's what he's doing. By giving thanks for their faith and their love that he knows is not perfect faith, And not perfect love, he is teaching us, the people of God, to see the fruit in others even when that fruit is not fully ripe. It takes no skill. In fact, it simply takes your carnal flesh to see the fault in others. But it's a sign of grace-derived maturity. To see the fruit that's sprouting in people and then to water that fruit's growth with your commendation, with your words of affirmation, even when it's clear that growth is still needed. Brian Chappell writes about a man, he heard a Christian who was a a lecturer. He would go around the country, and his vocation was to go into companies and corporations, and and he would teach corporate heads, employers, how to motivate, how to encourage their employees. And he, he would say that the five most important words for building morale with your employees is, I am proud of you. But this Christian man one day, after about 20 years of this, recognized that he had not said these words to his own son in years. He said, I've not supported my son as Christ supports me. And so immediately scheduled dinner with his son. And he gave his son those needed words of encouragement and a bond was restored that had been fractured for several years. And Paul teaches us so well with these words, giving thanks for you. We should pray that for each other. We should say these words to each other. We're a family. We're the body of Christ. And doing this consistently is powerful spiritual work. It's a means of grace to your brothers and your sisters. Well, we've seen here why he prays. Now he's going to get into what he prays. And the first thing we see, that believers might know God better. Look at me in verse 17. He says, Remembering you in my prayers... That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, it's incredible to me to read Paul's prison prayers. So, for instance, he, when he is in this prison, he, he writes... The book of Ephesians, he writes Colossians, he writes Philippians and Philemon. These are the prison epistles. And and he has these remarkable prayers in all of these epistles. For instance, we saw this when we studied Philippians 1 a few years back. That your love, he prays, may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. Later here in Ephesians 3... He prays that we would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses measure. It's quite remarkable. In Colossians, which is the sister letter to the Ephesians, what does he pray in Colossians 1? That you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding and that you may have a walk worthy of the calling, fully pleasing him in every good work. And then later in Ephesians 6, he's going to ask them to pray for him. And what does he pray for? Get me out of jail. No. Pray that while I'm in jail, I will be bold with my gospel, Ephesians 6, 19. His prayers never focus on material things. Now let me just say here, it is godly and biblical to pray for material things. It is a good thing to pray for material things. Indeed, give us this day our daily bread. That's in the Lord's Prayer. Peter says to cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. So it is a good thing to pray for material things. As we sang this morning, when we pray, when we come to the Lord, even with our material desires and needs and wants, we are confessing, you are the fount of all blessing. But having said that, if your prayers are only about material things, that is a symptom that you are finding your hope in the here and now. And that is not a healthy place to be. So Paul teaches us here where the burden of our prayers should reside and how to pray. So what what is his request here? Again, it's not that they receive a second blessing. They've been blessed in the past already with every... How do you you go beyond every? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. What he's praying here is that they may enjoy to the fullest, fullest extent possible all the implications of the blessings... In Jesus Christ, that they already have. And it begins by knowing God. Verse 17, it's a remarkable prayer. That you may have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, says that when people know God in this way, The losses and the crosses that we experience in this fallen world increasingly cease to matter to us because of what we know, or rather who we know, has simply banished these things from our minds. He adds that those who know their God have great energy for God. That's one of the great evidences that you know God, that you have great energy for him. Your great delight is to know him better, to walk with him, to magnify his worth, to make him known. Yeah, Packer quotes Daniel 11. We looked at Daniel 11 several years ago. Verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And so Paul here is is giving thanks for the good that he already sees. We can learn from that, especially in a cancel culture. In a cancel culture, if a a person does not believe everything I believe, I'm going to throw that person under the bus. I'm I'm just going to cancel that person. That's so far from the apostolic model and example that we see here. And so he gives thanks for the good he sees... But now he begins to pray for the good that the Lord has yet to bring into the believer's lives. Of course, the language he uses here for the Lord, I love this, is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. What's he doing here? First and foremost, he's worshiping. The apostle Paul is worshiping in prison. It reminds us that you don't need your circumstances just so... So that you can worship. He is in jail. And he is worshiping. But what else is he doing? He's wooing us. He's piling up these descriptions. The father of glory. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's wooing us. Because he's got some things to say to us. Especially in chapters 4 to 6. He's going to get in our business. In chapters 4 to 6... He's going to get really personable, and it's going to make us feel really uncomfortable. But He knows until we are weaned by being wooed, we're not going to be ready for what He has to say. So He's worshiping, but He's also wooing us. He's the Father of glory. Now, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, He describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. And then He says that the Spirit is the revealer of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 11. What is God's glory? It is the sum of all that he is. That's God's glory. The sum of all that he is in his essence, his, his attributes, his names, all the images that we see in scripture of our God. And that's why he prays. He prays that we would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know this God. Now, we've already been given the spirit. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, but now he's praying that we would have illumination. Illumination from the spirit. So essentially, long before he gets to the commands, and he's going to get to them soon, his first burden is get to know God. Get to know Him. This is the answer to all of life's problems. Knowing God would solve most of today's problems. Peter will later say, or he will say in Second Peter, His divine power has given us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Everything pertaining to life, eternal life and abundant life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Now, before the Ephesians conversion, before the Fishervillians conversion, Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that we were darkened in our understanding. We were alienated from the life of God Because of the ignorance in us due to the hardening of our hearts. It's not a very flattering description, but it's a true description. Darkened in our understanding, alienated, exiled from the life of God because of the ignorance in us, but we're not victims. It was due to the hardening of our hearts. Hearts that we hardened by our sin, but now... Through the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been saved to a relationship with this God. For the believer to know God is salvation. Jesus, the night before the cross, prayed these words in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so to know God is salvation to know God is sanctification now what is sanctification it's the work of god's free grace whereby he renews our whole man into the image of god in christ and enables us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness that's progressive sanctification and to know god is progressive sanctification philippians 3:10 that i may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To know God is salvation. To know God is sanctification. To know God is our ultimate glorification. 1 Corinthians 13, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul begins this prayer that we would come to a deeper knowledge of our God. The Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he continues his prayer. What does he pray? He prays that the believers might be enlightened. Notice the first part of 18. There's really three parts to this verse. We'll break them down that way. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, our hearts, they don't have eyes, Right? In fact, there's no other place in any literature that this terminology is used. Paul is using metaphorical language because he, he wants us to know that our problem is spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness. But he also recognizes that the heart, and that's not referring to the, that muscle that pumps blood. He's referring to the causal core of our being. Whatever our heart treasures most, is what drives the words we speak, the things we think, the actions we do, and our motivations and our loves. And as Edward says, the order of our loves makes us who we are. So he's using metaphorical language because he wants us to recognize that spiritual darkness is our problem. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, if the brokenness in us, and all of us know that, if you're honest, if the brokenness in us and the brokenness around us, we tend to focus more on the brokenness around us, but we have brokenness in us as well. If the brokenness in us and the brokenness around us isn't to engulf us, we have to know that what we see with our physical eyes isn't the full reality. It isn't the true story, and so Paul's prayer. This week, again, I read uh, an article that Chapel alludes to um, from Pulse of the Planet that I think helps drive this home. Uh, this article is about blue whales, who are the, evidently the largest creatures that have ever lived on the earth. And they have one of the loudest animal sounds, but these sounds that they make are so low in pitch that they're actually below the range of human hearing. And so for the longest, scientists have believed that blue whales are mute. But then new technology was developed. And now we can pick up their sounds. Modern instruments now have taught scientists that their call, the blue whale's call, is so powerful that another whale can hear it, get this, 2,000 miles away. Of course, that's been the case since creation. All right? Since God put these blue whales into the ocean so that they could play. I love that language that the psalmist uses about Leviathan, maybe the blue whale. But this has been undetected by us until recent years because our senses have been too limited to register it. Paul recognized that can happen spiritually as well. And that's why, rather than Seeing reality by what we see with our physical eyes. He wants us to see reality by what we see with our spiritual eyes. That's why whatever happens on Tuesday, nothing is going to change with regard to God's purposes and plans and his church. Isn't that comforting? But our eyes of our hearts have to be enlightened to these realities. Now he's going to pray specifically. He's going to get very specific That the the people of God, with their spiritual eyes, would comprehend three realities. And we're only going to look at two today. Uh, The third reality, the power that we have, resurrection power, we'll look at next week. But the first two we see here. the, uh, The first we see in the second part of verse 18, that believers might be enlightened to their hope. I love that language. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Before hearing, before believing the gospel, we had no hope and were without God in the world. He says that in chapter 2, verse 12, those exact words. But now. But now, because of the blood of his cross, having made peace for us by his atoning work, Christ has reconciled us to the Father. Now, that calling has its beginning in the divine liberations of the Godhead in eternity past. That We saw that in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. That calling has its continuance. In the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 7, and the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance, and it's going to have its consummation in, in heaven when Christ returns. But notice, in everyday vernacular, this word hope, it's less than optimistic sometimes, because hope is used for uncertain things. You could say, well, I hope I get this for my birthday. I hope I get this for, my, for Christmas. I hope I get that raise. I hope I get that job, but it's far from certain. But in the scripture, hope is used of that which is certain because it's grounded by the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter describes it as a living hope. He says, praise be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead which means your hope is certain unless Jesus can be unresurrected and he can't. In Titus 2:13 Paul describes it as a blessed hope. The writer of Hebrews who's writing so that the the people of God may persevere through very difficult challenges and temptations, he describes it as the full assurance of hope until the end. And this is the hope we've seen in verses 3 to 14. What is that hope? God has a purpose for the world. And that purpose is to sum up all things in in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And that plan is underway. It was Inaugurated. It was begun by Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and in sending his Holy Spirit. God has a purpose for the world, and there is no force in our world that can thwart that. As well, not only does he have this purpose, until that purpose is consummated, we have pardon. our sins and provision for our pilgrimage. That brings us to the final part of verse 18, our final point today. He prays that the believers might be enlightened to our inheritance. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, what is the difference between riches? and hope. They're certainly related. Well, in the first case, the emphasis is on assurance. We have a sure hope. It's a living hope. And so we have that assurance. That's one of the things that the Protestants celebrate. Yesterday was the 503rd anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. There was famously a cardinal named Bellarmine. There's a school in town named after Bellarmine, and he said, "The great heresy of the Reformation is the doctrine of assurance." Well, that's just utterly nonsense. Uh, this hope secures our assurance. We can be assured that God's purposes for His world and God's purposes for us will be achieved. But when he uses the language of riches here, he's referring to the scope of the blessings of our inheritance. These are riches that are enduring. And as I said last week, these riches begin in Jesus Christ as believers applied to us by the Spirit. The Father grants us these riches in Jesus by the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian blessing, and it begins with the assurance of God's love. One of the most horrific things you could ever experience is to doubt the love of God. It's behind our anxieties. It's behind our discontentments. It's behind our jealousies and our covetousness. It's behind our despair. Deep-rooted, we, we doubt the love of God. But our inheritance That we have now in Christ by the Spirit begins with the assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. We have peace. Why do we have peace? Because Jesus has secured peace by taking the wrath of God in our place. And then we have joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and he produces something supernatural in us. Love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness. And then we have an increase in grace. We have all sufficient manna for our journey. New morning mercies, great is His faithfulness. That's our inheritance. And we have this grace to persevere until the end. But then there's an inheritance awaiting us. And here's what Paul says about that inheritance, incidentally. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No heart can fathom what God has in store for those who love him. These are the riches that are ours that have been inaugurated in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed in us by his spirit, Pastor Kenneth Chaffin used to tell a story about a pastor and a deacon he knew who went to visit this very wealthy man. And this man had a mansion. And when they drove up, he had these two very expensive cars sitting in his driveway. And his lawn was just professionally manicured and a glorious uh, custom-designed pool. And the deacon turned to the pastor and he said, what kind of good news do we have for him? Well, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to discern what is truly valuable, don't we? That's why Paul praised this. What do you think about this as we close? Ephesus was a very wealthy city. Perhaps the wealthiest city of that day. In fact, it's a even now, uh, an archaeologist uh, playpen. But if you go back there today, all the riches are gone. They're all gone. But the believers of that day, they're just getting started with enjoying what is true riches. Let me close with these words from Paul. Paul is thinking along these lines of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's our inheritance. The things freely given us by God. Of course, the most fundamental and central thing He has freely given us is His Son. And that's what we're going to celebrate at the table this morning, God has given us His Son. He so loved the world that He gave His Son. Those who believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the table is to celebrate that reality. For those of you who are visiting with us today, if you are a member in good standing of a like-minded gospel-believing church, if you have... That is, you have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, and you are a member of a church, baptized member of a church in good standing, and we would ask you to celebrate with us here at the table. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts so that we come to this table with our hearts rightly fitted to partake of these elements, which are a sign of of what God has achieved for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you indeed have blessed us and we recognize we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened every day. I pray that for every believer here. Lord, you also use means towards that enlightenment. We know supremely it's the word of God. Psalm 19 verse 8 says, it's the word of God that enlightens our eyes but you also enlighten our eyes by the table. Father, we recognize that this table is not just an individual act. It's the church's act of communing with your Christ and of communing with each other and of commemorating his death by partaking of this bread and this cup. But we also know that there's an individual aspect to this as well, Lord. Uh, it's the act of receiving Christ's benefits and of renewing our commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body, marking it off from the world. Merciful Father, we pray before we partake, we would just like to remember what your son has done for us. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. But you demonstrated your love for us that while we were still enemies in rebellion, Christ died for us. And now, Lord, we want to confess the present sins that we commit in this body, recognizing it's those very sins that he died for. Father, I pray you'd show us any sins that we need to confess and repent of. Maybe it was a sin we committed earlier in the week, and we haven't even thought about it since. Show us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have mercy on us in your son, Jesus. We might delight in your will, walk in your ways. To the glory of your name.